You may be seated. And when you are, please open your Bibles to the book of Romans. We're continuing our journey through the uh, opening chapters of the book of Romans, and today we start a new chapter. We are in Romans chapter 3. Our sermon text is verse 1 through 18. But um, by now, you've no doubt figured out um, my custom, the way I try to do things, which is to begin reading at the text we looked at uh, the last time we were together. So we're going to be uh, begin reading at chapter 2, verse 17. Uh, that way we'll have a little of the context to follow Paul's argument into uh, chapter 3. You'll remember that Paul's been kind of indicting uh, the whole world, saying that we are all in need of, gos- of the gospel, that we have all sinned. And then he turns towards his kinsmen, uh, the Jews, uh, God's covenant people. And he starts to address them. He says, um, don't have your trust, your, your hope for salvation in the fact that you were simply born in this community and raised in it. Um, don't put your hope in your circumcision or say in our case, um, baptism. No, you can't put your uh, trust in there. You uh, need Christ. You need the gospel. And he's continuing along uh, these lines this morning. So let's begin reading at Romans chapter 2, verse 17. This is God's holy and inspired word. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preached against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way, To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, 
as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come, as some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. And here ends the reading of God's word. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we would ask that you would help us as we continue to think on this, your word. Lord, we do ask that you would help us to get a greater understanding of not only this book, but um, all of your word. Lord, would you help us that that picture would become clearer and clearer? We would ask, oh Lord, that you would help us to know and remember your word. We would ask that you would penetrate beyond our minds and, and speak to our hearts. Lord, we would ask that we would hear a still small voice. Lord, we would ask, um, what are you saying to me? Lord, what would you have me to do? Lord, would you speak to us today? Uh, we would ask in Christ's name, amen. Ignaz Simmelweis was a Hungarian physician uh, who worked at the Vienna General Hospital in the mid-19th century. And he noticed that the mortality rate of women giving birth uh, was much higher in the war that was attended by medical students and doctors than in the midlife, uh, the midwife ward. And so he began to investigate the matter. Why were these mothers dying? After conducting a series of experiments and observations, he made a startling discovery. He found that the medical students and doctors weren't washing their hands between patients, and the midwives were. He concluded that this lack of hygiene was causing the spread of deadly infections and diseases among the patients. And so he implemented a new hand-washing policy for all of the medical personnel, and the mortality rate dropped dramatically. But despite all of his well-documented success, he was unable to convince his colleagues about the importance of hand washing. They dismissed his ideas as ridiculous and they refused uh, to implement what he had learned. They even ran him out of the hospital. It wasn't until after his death that his ideas were fully embraced by the medical community and hand washing became a standard practice in hospitals around the world. Despite this, despite the fact that it was a matter of life and death and the evidence was right before them, 
Yet the, the medical community was blind. They were blind to their desperate problem, and they were blind to the solution. Similarly, the Jews that Paul is addressing in our text faced a matter of eternal life and death. The evidence was right before them in the scriptures, and yet they were blind to their desperate sin problem and the solution that's found in the gospel. In our text, Paul demonstrates the unique privileges and responsibilities of God's people, the problem of, a, of sin that affects all people, and the provision of salvation that comes through faith in Christ alone. And you'll see that Paul begins by emphasizing the unique privilege that Jewish people had by entrusting, by being entrusted with the oracles of God. But this privilege brought with it great responsibility. So we're going to begin examining our text with our first heading, the privilege of God's people. The privilege of God's people. Children, you might draw a picture of a person holding a Bible. This could represent the privilege and the responsibility of having access to God's word and the importance of reading and obeying it. You'll remember that at the end of chapter 2, Paul told the Jews not to place their confidence in things like circumcision or other or their religious affiliation. Paul argued that outward circumcision gets no one into the kingdom of God. It's inward circumcision that marks the children of promise. In verse 29, he said, a Jew is one inwardly and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit not by the letter. And you'll notice that as Paul begins chapter three, he paints a hypothetical picture of someone who's interrupting with objections. Someone who is objecting to what he's just said. He anticipates their reaction in verse one, writing, then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? These aren't trivial questions. Today we might ask if being baptized or a member of the church doesn't save us and just having the word of God isn't enough for salvation, then what's the point of being associated with Christianity or the church? The question before us in the text is what, what's the advantage of being a Jew? And is there any value in the covenant sign of circumcision? Paul was ready with his answer in verse 2. Is there any advantage, any value? Paul answers, much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. Paul acknowledges the special privileges given to the Jewish people, such as the law and the covenants. In Romans 9, 4, and 5, Paul says that the Jewish people were entrusted with the oracles of God, the covenants, and the promises. This means that they had a special role in God's plan of salvation. 
They were the first recipients of the revelation of God's law and promises. But the primary advantage the Jews had was possessing the entire Old Testament revelation of God. Having the written self-revelation of God was a huge advantage to the Jews. Possessing a copy of God's word is a huge advantage. The Bible gives us a written description of God's eternal nature. God's word teaches us that the Lord is an all-powerful creator. It reveals that he is perfect in holiness, in righteousness, in love, and in justice. Another advantage of having the oracles of God is that we have a written description of the nature and purpose of man. The scriptures teach us of our need as lost sinners. It tells us what God requires of man. The Bible says that we are to love God with all of our being. God's word shows you the perfect moral character of God in your own sinfulness. It reveals to you your need of forgiveness. It points you to your need for repentance and faith in Christ. It points you to your need for Jesus who offers forgiveness and eternal life. It was a glorious privilege to have the scriptures. The Jews received God's special revelation, his word. They had the promises of God, promises made to the patriarchs, promises made regarding God's character, promises made about the coming Messiah, the offspring. But simply possessing the scriptures didn't mean that they were actually saved. They weren't saved simply by being Jewish. If you fail to believe in the Messiah, the privilege of having God's word doesn't take you very far. Owning a copy of the Bible won't do you much good if you don't believe that Jesus is the Savior and you don't receive him as your Lord. You might remember how Jesus spoke with the religious leaders of his day in John chapter 5. Jesus said, you search the scriptures because you think that they give you eternal life. But the scriptures point to me, yet you refuse to come to me and receive this life. The advantage of being among God's people is tremendous. It's tremendous. We have God's word. We know what he's like. We know what we're like. And we know what God requires for salvation. Jesus said that you must come to him to receive eternal life. As we consider the privilege and responsibility that comes with being entrusted with God's word, we must also acknowledge the reality of sin and the human tendency to fall short of God's standards. In the following verses, Paul addresses the problem of sin. 
That's our second heading, the problem of sin. As our text continues, Paul addresses the problem of sin and its consequences for all people, whether they are Jews or Gentiles. Again, children, you might draw a picture of a group of people with different skin colors and and clothing styles. This could represent the fact that all people need salvation, regardless of their nationality or their background. Paul had been an evangelist and a church planter for years. He had addressed people from various nations and backgrounds, And he was familiar with evangelizing the Jews. He was familiar with their objections. He knew how they would push back. He could probably already foresee what was coming next. His imaginary opponent's next question comes in verse 3. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? That's like saying, Paul, how can you possibly say we Jews have failed in our privileged position and still insist that we are an advantaged people? If we failed, God's word is powerless and he's unfaithful. This argument completely ignores Personal responsibility for sin. This is blame shifting. You choose to sin, but it's, but it's God's fault. You don't get a free pass simply because you're born a Jew or you're born in the church. God is serious about sin. Does the Jew's lack of faithfulness to God's promises make God unfaithful? In verse 4, Paul answers, By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar. If every human being who ever lived declared that God was faithless, God would be found true, and every man who testified against him would be found a liar. In these verses, Paul addresses the objection that if some of God's people were unfaithful, then this would nullify God's promises and undermine his righteousness. To to address this objection, Paul emphasizes that the problem of sin is not only an issue among Gentiles, but also among the Jews. He affirms that both Jews and Gentiles alike are under sin and have fallen short of God's glory. You can see that if you scan down and you look at verses 9 and 10. Furthermore, Paul argues that the problem of sin is not only external, but also internal. It's not just a matter of outward behavior, but also a matter of the heart. The problem of sin is a pervasive issue that affects every aspect of human nature. It leads to rebellion against God and a complete inability to save ourselves. 
But those who don't believe God's word in no way diminish the value of the promise that God makes to those who do believe. God is a perfect, perfect promise keeper. He's faithful. Listen, God is full of integrity. Scripture says that it's impossible, impossible for God to lie. God can't lie because it's contrary to his nature. He is truth. At the end of verse 4, Paul cites a verse from Psalm 51. He says, It is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. These are King David's words to the Lord. The psalm was written by David after being confronted by Nathan for his adulterous relationship with Bathsheba. After David sinned against God in the Bathsheba incident, he was willing to be judged and God proved right in judging him. Paul cites this verse to the Jews as proof that God always remains faithful and true in his judgment. And Paul continues to address his imaginary objector in verse 5 who asks, But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us. Paul's addressing a potential objection to his teaching about the universality of sin and the need for faith in Christ. Some may argue that if our unrighteousness serves to highlight God's righteousness, then why should we be punished for our sins? In verse 6, Paul answers, By no means. For then how could God judge the world? Paul's response to the objection takes the objection to its logical conclusion and shows that it leads to an absurd and contradictory position. He argues that if the objection were true, then God would be unjust to punish anyone for their sins, including the most heinous of crimes. However, this conclusion is clearly unacceptable, as it would mean that there would be no moral standard by which to judge actions and no consequences for violating that standard. Therefore, Paul concludes that the objection is invalid and that all people are accountable to God for their actions. Paul is addressing potential objections of the unbelieving Jews. He points out that their unbelief doesn't nullify God's faithfulness and their disobedience doesn't make God's promises to them void. However, he also points to the fact that their unrighteousness highlights the righteousness of God. They need a solution to their sin problem. 
But despite the gravity of sin and its devastating effects, we could take comfort in knowing that God has provided a solution to this problem. In fact, it is precisely because of this problem of sin that we need the provision of God's salvation. That's our third heading, the provision of God's salvation. Children, for this third point, you might want to draw a picture of a cross with a heart on it. That could represent God's solution to the problem of sin. The solution is the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross and the offer of salvation for all who believe in him. The heart could symbolize the love of God that motivated him to send his son to die for our sins. As the text continues, we see that our salvation is not based on our own righteousness or works, but on God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And we see that as Paul addresses these last two questions in our text, in verse 7, he imagined an opponent challenging him by asking But if through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? The objection being made is that if God's righteousness is demonstrated by our unrighteousness, then why does God still judge us as sinners? The objection is based on the idea that if God is able to use our unrighteousness to display his righteousness, then maybe we should be rewarded rather than punished for our sins. It's absurd. Suppose a parent tells a child not to eat cookies before dinner, and then the child disobeys and eats the cookie anyway. Then later in the day, the parent finds out and he confronts the child about the cookie. But the child responds by saying, but mom, I made a mistake and ate the cookie, and now you're able to demonstrate your forgiveness and your patience by not punishing me. So why should I be punished? I'd have done you a favor. The child is using the same kind of faulty reasoning as the objector. Just as the child can't use the parent's mercy and forgiveness to nullify their disobedience, so too the objector can't use God's righteousness displayed through human unrighteousness to justify their sin. As Paul continues to address the objections and questions that may arise From his arguments, he anticipates one last objection from his imaginary opponent. And this objection serves as a crucial moment in the text, shedding light on the nature of sin and emphasizing the significance of God's provision of salvation. Draw your attention to verse 8. And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, 
Paul is addressing the objection of some of those who accuse him and other Christians of promoting sin by saying that salvation comes through faith in Christ alone apart from works. These critics argue that if people are saved through faith alone, then they can sin without consequences since their sins are already forgiven. Paul rejects this argument, affirming that salvation is not a license to sin, but a gift of God's grace that transforms the believer's heart and empowers them to live a new life. He also affirms that God's justice and righteousness are upheld in the salvation of sinners through faith in Christ. The heart that is transformed by the Spirit desires to put away sin and follow Christ. It desires to be pleasing to the Lord and to walk in holiness. And the Bible says that God in his sovereignty and mercy chose to save sinners according to his own purpose and that grace apart from works or merit This is why in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, Paul wrote, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Imagine you're a child who wants to buy a toy from a store, but you don't have any money You ask your parents to buy it for you, and they agree. So they go to the store, they pick up the toy, they pay for it with their own money. You didn't do anything to earn it. You didn't buy it with your own money. You get to enjoy it because your parents gave it to you as a gift. In the same way, salvation is a gift from God. We can't earn it or pay for it ourselves, but God gives it to us as a free gift through faith in Jesus. It's not because of anything we have done, but because of what Christ has done for us on the cross. Christ's death on the cross fully satisfied the demands of God's justice and secured salvation for all who believe in him. As Paul wrote in Romans 5, 8, But God shows his love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Our salvation is based on God's grace and not our own works. And yet Christians reject the idea that the gospel is a license to sin. God's salvation not only saves us from the penalty of sin, but transforms us to live a life that is pleasing to him by the power of the Holy Spirit. And notice what Paul says about those who reject the gospel of free grace. He says their condemnation is just. Paul says that those who reject this message of grace and continue to rely on their own works for salvation, are under condemnation. This condemnation refers to the judgment of God against sinners who have not trusted in Christ alone for their salvation. 
Those who rejected the gospel of grace are still under the curse of sin and death, and they will face eternal separation from God unless they turn to Christ in faith. Paul is emphasizing the seriousness of rejecting the gospel and the need of all people to trust in Christ for salvation. In this passage, we've seen that Paul acknowledges the special privileges given to the Jewish people, such as the law and the covenants. However, he also acknowledges that these privileges do not make them immune to sin or exempt them for a need for salvation. As Christians, we must recognize the privilege we have of being part of God's chosen people through faith in Christ. We've also seen that sin is a problem that affects all people and separates us from God. We must acknowledge the depth and seriousness of sin and our need for salvation through faith in Christ. We can't save ourselves by our own works or our own righteousness, but only through faith in Jesus. This is something that every Christian needs to preach to his or her own soul on a regular basis. Lastly, we've seen that our salvation is not based on our own efforts, but on God's grace through faith in Jesus. As Christians, we trust in the sovereignty of God and the sufficiency of Christ's atonement for our salvation. We have no reason to boast in our own righteousness, but only in the righteousness of Christ that is imputed to us by faith. This passage reminds us of the privilege we have as God's chosen people, the problem of sin that affects all people and the provision of salvation that comes through faith in Christ alone. It's only through faith in Christ that we can be saved and reconciled to God. May we be reminded of the sufficiency of Christ's sacrifice for our salvation and seek to live lives that reflect our gratitude in obedience to him. Amen. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we are grateful to have your word. Lord, we would ask that you would, by your spirit, instill in us a hunger to read your word, a hunger to memorize your word, a hunger to know you, to hear you. Lord, would you instill in us that kind of hunger? And Lord, would you also empower us that we would not only read it and know it and memorize it, but that we would live it, that we would apply it Lord, we would ask that you would use your word to transform us, to renew us, to change us. Lord, we would ask for your help. 
we would ask that you would help us to lean on Christ and Christ alone. Lord, you know that we have legal hearts. Help us to live embracing what you have provided for us, that freedom you have given to us in Christ. Lord, we would ask that you would help us to preach your gospel to our souls, that we would keep our eyes on Christ knowing that you have conquered, that you have won our salvation. It is accomplished. It is finished. Lord, we would ask that you would help us, empower us, equip us. We'd ask that you'd hear our prayer in Christ's name. Amen.